Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Welcome to Keywords in Play. I'm Marley Ann Butt, and today we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Xavier Ho. It's such a pleasure to have you. I think we're going to have a really special episode in um, learning about your very unique background, your career path, as well as Pride at Play, the queer indie games exhibition that Xavier spearheaded, and I was very lucky to be a part of. Uh, welcome, Xavier. You're very important to be that part of Marley Ann. Thank you, and hello. <laughs> so good to have you. So, Xavier, would you like to introduce yourself of where you are at now and maybe how you got here? Yeah, I'll um, talk about where I'm at now and then we can kind of get into a bit deeper later on. Um, so I'm a full-time academic at Monash Design. Um, I'm a 40-40-20 teaching and research academic and um, teaching side of things, I come from interaction design. So that's your user experience design, that's your interaction screen-based touch and user journeys, as well as digital visualization and interactive artworks. So I kind of have this really bizarre wide range of digital skills that we can get into later. Uh, and my research is on LGBTQ video games, same tabletop games, hopefully down the line. So really interested to interview game designers that have a queer background or uh, intersects their work in a queer community, whether that is looking at sort of self-expression or political activism, storytelling, or even educational games. Either way, that w- I'm really interested to find out sort of their motivations, why they're doing the work they were uh, they do, as well as the type of sort of responses and mediums that's out there and how they can make their work more financially sustainable and also hopefully have a good reception in, in the public and just trying to document the work that's been happening throughout the years because as we know if you don't document digital stuff they go away and video games in particular just like you know film on netflix and apple tv once they get pulled off they disappear forever so when you ship a game you don't physically ship anything you upload them to a platform like steam and itch.io and if that ever gets taken down or if your publisher decides that it's time to move on no one else can download your game anymore and that's only on the pc before the consoles if they're you know if they're stopped and you can't get a copy of hardware to play the game that's all kind of be a problem so we kind of in the video game research space i think we share the same dilemma with other digital scholars when it comes to archival and documentation and yeah i kind of dabble i guess into curation more recently with Pride I Play because we I think you and I both Malian wanted to do some kind of games curation and we talked about this back in maybe July June 2022 I think something like that and we just kind of aligned on having this vision of let's put together a games exhibition that's all about queer games which I was very very happy to figure out what what that looks like and learn a lot from our collaborators like Chloe Appleby from uh, Sydney Powerhouse and other people like Adrian Shaw who did the Rainbow Arcade in Berlin as well so sort of following the footsteps of people who have done video game exhibitions and trying to work out what that looks like in Sydney World Pride and then Melbourne later on. That's about me. Such important work and also at 
absolutely a learning experience with Pride at Play <laughs> as, as being involved in it. We definitely learned a lot. <laughs> we learned so much. Yes. And in a short amount of time, I think it's quite impressive how much came together in such a short amount of time. Yeah, I think the whole timeline was, we can dig into this later as well, but it was like four to six months for the initial bit. Yeah, and it was toured twice, right? Sydney and Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, I think um, a year like 12 months is probably a better timeline. <laughs> Let's double that next time. <laughs> so where you are at now at Monash, full-time academic, how did you start off? So you're currently in design. What was your PhD in? Oh, it's kind of interesting to think about it because it is in design, right? It's a full-on data visualization piece, kind of what I call idea networks in games. So if we can think about how we search and classify video games like genres and tags and the thing that we describe like game mechanics, you know, action platforming and the resource management, that kind of things, it's quite difficult to capture a lot of games sort of using these very high-level generic tags. So if you say your game is like a top-down isometric co-op couch with some kind of puzzles element it's really hard to describe what that game is even though you can kind of go oh yeah there may be a like i can think of a few games like this in that category if you are familiar with those terms but it's not really good enough to describe oh if you like this game you might like this other one too right there's other reasons why we might seek out other video games through like referrals and recommendations shall we say so i was really interested to look at what about genealogies of histories if we're borrowing say setting a game in rome ancient rome what other games as an intro room. Maybe that's a reason why someone might be looking at games like that or uh, telling similar stories through maybe um, a pattern that might, might have been way through, say, folklore or, or a particular culture. So you draw from the same characters, but you kind of have different adaptations. That That's also quite interesting. And that can lend itself to, say, fictional characters and real uh, historical characters that might be adapted into a video game. And then there are sequels and then there's different platforms and different kinds of things. I was really interested to find out if you started out with a concept that might be a location or an event and then there's like a game adaptation of that how many adaptations are there and, and what do they all look like and how are they different that's another way to kind of trace sort of how a particular piece of culture has kind of come about so I was really interested in this idea of an idea network and I used the word idea network because I didn't want it to be just solely focused on an event or character I wanted to be like here's a, a very abstract word which is ideas and, and how does that sort of permeate throughout so um, I applied a lot of different network thinking so thinking about tracing back in time like citation networks, thinking about you know the DNA theory, thinking about how scientific citations has been preserved today and how we can find prior work by looking at bibliographies. But video games don't really have, I guess, luxuries of that. Like no one cites other games in their games in the credits. And so trying to formulate a pretty crude but decent method that I can study, you know, massive number of games. So we're talking about a couple thousand at a time in a in a pool of genres like roguelike and other things to see how we can at least get close to thinking about if you like this game and this game is based on something, you'll find other games that's based on similar things like Lord of the Rings or like uh, the typical dungeon crawler sort of fantasy with like a key at the bottom of the thing that you have to come out again or like an escape you know this horror realm that you're going somewhere and that could be hp lovecraft that could be something else so looking for games that have these similar gene- uh, genealogies and, and looking at how to sort of represent them visually and then provide a search platform or like a tool so someone can kind of find and trace where this comes from could be quite interesting so i did a few sort of like preliminary work i would say on that i haven't got a chance to revisit in a sense that it would be really cool to have like a fully hosted version where people can actually use the tool online 
done rather than just my little personal PhD tool that I made uh, in order to do the research because I still had to answer the research question, which was what would this idea network look like? How would you define such a network by its points and connections? And how would you uh, describe those points and connections? Like, are they direct influences or are they inferred influences? And how can you justify that? So I was spending more time doing that as well. It was really fun though. I also forgot to mention, I did a few papers on game jams and hackathons. <laughs> That's kind of how I got started and stumbled into game studies. All right. I mean, I can see the progression because I know the progression, but it is similar but different, right? Still in design in many ways. So pride at play. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pride at play. Do you want to walk us through the process of Pride at Play, maybe starting with what we displayed and then I guess working back from how we got there? Yeah, Pride at Play, if I can give a description for the listeners who hasn't seen it, we opened it on the 21st of February in 2023 at the Sydney College of the Arts project space. Um, We were really lucky because we knew someone as in uni who knew someone who knew someone that said could you please give this space to us and they're like yeah sure your project looks really interesting and they wanted to support us as part of Sydney World Pride so we were given this space that was about I want to say 5 by 11 meters but no one can visualize what it looks like if you walk from left to the right side or the shorter 5 meters of the space you can do it in about 7 to 8 normal adult steps so that gives you an idea about how big it is slightly bigger than a normal apartment bedroom and 11 meters imagine like a slightly longer kitchen living room set up but like maybe another 50 percent of that in an apartment is sort of what we got like a big apartment space that was fully it was beautiful right it has this wooden floor and it has this beautiful semicircle ceiling with like geometrical patterns and it has walls and lighting hanging system on both sides so we, we really got a beautiful space to work with and what we wanted to do initially was we wanted to show queer games to the public who wanted to be there to check out Sydney World Pride and kind of put Sydney Uni on the map but also say come and play the games check out what they have to say it's not just shooters it's not just puzzles because when you say video games to anyone on the street either they're gonna go well I'm not a gamer I don't play games or it's not for me it's too violent I don't really like to use guns and stuff or it's I'm not good enough like I'm shit at fighting games it's not for me and you have all these very interesting sort of I guess, perceptions about what games are. When uh, you look at more, um, I guess, indie games and especially queer indie games, you get to see a lot more story-driven narrative designs, thinking about someone's coming out and coming of age stories. And that could be going through with their first relationship, first date, how to explain yourself down to coming out to your parents or to your friends or down to you're an older adult now, but you're going through different kinds of societal expectations that you probably didn't need to explain you know, be confronted with, but because society has certain assumptions that you don't fit in and therefore you kind of have to figure something out. And that's done through storytelling. That's done through conversations. And so you see a lot of queer games are quite word heavy, (laughs) wordy. So visual novels, interactive fictions, and uh, role-playing games tend to be, and role-playing games with puzzle elements tend to be uh, quite common uh, from the data sets that we've got and also from the submissions that we got to Pride of Play. We do have a few puzzle games that I think Queer and Show was like an educational game about different gender and sexualities through matchmaking in a grid, like like a square grid space where you can move people around trying to match them based on their preferences. That was really interesting. These games don't require years of mastery to be you know good at Mario Kart or good at Street Fighter you don't you don't 
have to compete with anyone. You can play by yourself. You can play with friends. And some in some other cases, like a few tabletop games that we have. So for example,、um, our Monday Supernatural Life by、uh, Story Brewers role playing in Sydney, or Logan,、uh, an autobiographical tabletop game where you play through the journey of Logan growing up, going through a gender transition, and eventually being twenty one. Is where the game ends. You are kind of having a conversation with your friend who is playing that with you, and you're writing down, making agenda, you're making notes, trying to figure out what growing up is like. And at the end of the game, you actually come up with a little journal, a little agenda, just that experience of having done that. And it doesn't require you to kind of jump through puzzles. It doesn't require you to be guns blazing, right? And and I think people just often forget that games can be fun, like Monopoly. <laughs> if you like Monopoly, anyway, can be a little bit、uh, stimulating, like Scrabble. If you like Scrabble, although there are limitations in how stimulating that can be, but also can be creative, right? You can think of painting and drawing as a way of making a game. Or having a, a gameplay, and and there are games that support that. So I I just wanted to like be able to show these games that are quite unconventional, but are still quite. I wouldn't say that players who play queer games. Don't see them as conventional, but certainly if you don't play games normally, that that's not what comes to mind normally either. So we showed games side by side with interviews, with quotes, with different printed booklets, zines. We even got a catalog, right, Malian? We did a bunch of interviews with all the game designers who exhibited at Pride of Play. And we had a 128-page catalog that's beautifully designed and so beautiful. Yeah, it was really good. Can people still get that catalog, or is it done? <laughs> the catalog is available online for free. It's no longer for sale. I'm currently in the process of、uh, doing this funny thing called project acquittal, which means I have to document all the money and I'm processing the final sales that has already been done by the end of June. But I need to do the finance admin basically to calculate how much money we actually got, and then we're donating all that money、uh, generated from catalog sales to LGBTQ focused charities. So、um, I'm doing that at the moment, but you can get a PDF for free online at prideaplay.org. Wonderful. So everyone, make sure to go and get that because it is absolutely gorgeous, right? Like. Such a beautiful catalog, and if you weren't able to see the exhibition in person, I think it is a really nice snapshot, as well as companion to the exhibition because of all the in-depth interviews with the devs. Yeah, for sure.、Um, I'm hoping that we can publish a few photos from that.、Um, so the goal, I guess, here is we we still have an Instagram and a Twitter account, although who knows how long Twitter will last. We could publish some photos, I think, on on those social media platforms, so you can kind of see what it was like in Sydney and in Melbourne. I think there's a few there already, but it would be good to. Just continue to publish a couple more. Sounds like a plan. So, from the learning experience of curating and putting on display Pride at Play, what are some of the key takeaways、uh, that, from the best parts that you really loved and enjoyed doing, the things that you would do differently next time? Yeah. So, besides making it a twelve-month project rather than a four-month project, <laughs> that's the, my number one learning right there.、Uh, do it for. A much longer time,、uh, what I call horizon. So you can see from where you are to the horizon, which is where you want to be. Given a twelve-month time frame, would be so important because、uh, to even secure the gallery space alone typically takes about one to four months, depending on how many gallery people you know and、uh, whether they're open for applications. So you have to apply to the gallery and say, "Hey, here's the project. Here's some ideas of what I want to do. Photograph if you got it, or even written descriptions." And depending on whether they have 
openings uh, as well as costs attached to it. They'll let you know and then you have to apply to that kind of thing. So if we did it over a 12-month period, it would mean that the gallery, the local press, the gallery manager who might need to hire equipment to help you install can really do a lot more than sort of like, we got the space, we have to do it in, in four to six months. And it's a lot less time to source printers to design the book before it gets printed that we, we had a very optimized workflow between me and um, my research assistant's Jasmine to to make that happen right in, in four months and also uh, the time frame allows you to get I guess a bit more funding so if you needed to apply for additional grants to get industry sponsorship or even to run workshops and you it's better to ad, to advertise that earlier than later so my biggest 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 takeaway is definitely do it for two months and not four and not to mention this is less stress on everybody involved so you can meet and you know that even if not everything happens this week can still talk about it in two weeks it's fine like you're, you're less um, time poor which is good you're more time rich on the, in, in the other way <laughs> a few other things i guess uh things i can talk about that i think worked really well so we had to interview about 22 people in about a month right and in the past i know and, and molly and you're interviewing people for, for keywords in play you know this it's a lot of effort to email people and say hey when are you free can you uh have this calendar time let's book it in it's a lot of back and forth between you and your uh, interviewees. So we tried out uh, Calendly. I think it's the way, the, the website that we used, but there's a few others where you can connect your Google Calendar and Microsoft calendars to this particular service. And then it will just know, okay, you are free or not free on these days. And then you can say, I want to do an interview event. Uh, I don't want to make this an ad for them, but basically you can do this with various providers and you say, I have rules. Like I do not want back-to-back meetings. Meetings are one hour long and it has to be between nine to five or 10 to 4 between these three weeks. You can set your own constraints and then what happens is it generates a link and most providers do this and then people can basically just be given that link and then they can choose a time that's available for them and they can even modify if they want to cancel and reschedule in the same link. So you don't really need to go through all that back and forth of finding a common time because you're just making your schedule sort of available to people who are not in your organization and and it really made scheduling interviews a lot easier and and I think that worked really well. I think there's lots of things that went really well but I'm trying to think of things that didn't go as well and I could be better um never use double-sided tape (laughs) (laughs) tape in a gallery is horrendous use white tack use blue tack use the hanging rails don't touch the walls and if you touch the walls don't use the double-sided tape because my partner Lewis and I was uh taking down the exhibition at the end of it it took us like one day like literally one full day of six hours just scraping the double-sided wall residue before they can be repainted. So, yeah, don't do that. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good job. <laughs> the hanging reel system is there for a reason. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was really genius. I think, Malian, when, when you and Matt were installing, and I think it was... Chloe, who did it earlier in the Sydney run, where we used the the my key and the go card and the Sydney card is called something else, the Opal cards as well as gaps, and then we used the the level tool, the bubble level to kind of go, okay, that's level, that's good. Let's put this panel over here and people can read about the quotes. Right next to it will be a screenshot of the game. And then on the other side of the room, we we've got quite a few computers and laptops and you know 
keyboards and mouse set up so people can actually play the games as well. So the idea there was some people just like to read and, and it's fine. But then at least the quotes and the screenshots gives them an idea of what this game might be about. But then if they then go and play the games, then now they have this double understanding of both what the game is about as well as the, what the designer has said about their own lives and their games. So there's like a different levels of appreciation, both in playing the game as a player, as well as sort of hearing from, in a way, the designer directly. And and I think that was a really good way to set it up. Although that said, I didn't know this. Did you go to Jeannie Maxwell's curation Out of Bounds in Acme while oh, it was missed running? It. You missed it. Yeah, so I didn't know this because I also missed a part of it. They put a mo- movable wall in gallery space three, I think it was downstairs in Acme. So it's like this dual screen installation that was really beautifully designed. And it's about <laughs> four game designers, Goldie and Drew, uh, there's a few people. I'm de- anyway, they played the multiplayer version of Red Dead Redemption. And then the whole point was, well, this is a game where you're supposed to shoot each other, but why do that? We're here to have fun. We're going to try and find out how this board is put together and we're going to try and go out of bounds. So they just spend hours tra- traveling from where they spawned to like two hours later going as far as they can until they literally get to the edge of the polygon of the land that they were standing. Or they get to the point where you thought the mountain in the distance was really beautiful. You get there, it's just like pyramids, like literal 45 degree sharp polygon pyramids (laughs) with really rough and overblown rock textures uh, that you're never supposed to see because no no player would, would spend two hours going there, but they did. Anyway, so it was a beautiful... A video exhibition about their their journey and actually behind that wall you can play one of Ian's uh, I think it was the early version of the Mars Logistics or some other game like that where you get to roam um, this also kind of a bizarre out of bounds land and you can go as far as you like um, to explore on this little car I didn't know that was there otherwise I would have played it but Jenny in their presentation at GSOP which is a different thing it's a conference that Malina had and, and I both were lucky to uh, run with Hugh said they wanted to make sure that people who are a little bit shy about playing games in the public, you know, like the whole idea of someone's watching over the shoulder playing a game is quite weird sometimes. Mm-hmm. So they set up a space in the back of the dual video installation. So there's two gaming stations there and you can play without someone watching you from behind the shoulder because they, they can't. It's only like a narrow and wide hallway where you can play, but you have to kind of walk from the left to the right to go through the hallway and you can't stand behind that person, at least not without them noticing because it's pretty obvious so you can play in a semi-private way and everyone who wants to watch the video or kind of read the quotes uh is just on the other side of the couch so one, one thing i think we we could have thought about at least investigate and we didn't do this because the gallery space we got was quite small was to look at using that movable wall that we got in the uh Carlos street art space in st kilda in victoria or even finding some kind of barrier which we did for an 18 plus section in the sydney run for product play to have like a semi-private area where people can play just any game at Pride of Play or any other games in the exhibition without having this weird feeling of someone watching over them from the shoulder. That will be something we could do better, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's a nice consideration. And at GSOP hearing our experienced curators who presented comments about that as a barrier for potential audiences was really interesting and I think very much on point. And, you know, Xavier, you did mention that there was consideration in terms of like a over 18 plus area. And I think there's also the 
consideration of making it a comfortable and welcoming space. And I think you did really well with that, Xavier. So well done. Um, <laughs> but maybe if you wanted to speak about some of the touches that you added or thoughts to add to make sure that it had that feeling. Yeah, so I can speak to two things. Um, one is that we made sure every single gaming station had headphones. And so people who have more sort of audio sensorial, I guess, just hearing things that you don't want to hear in the corner of the room, you can put on a headphone and even even with the games that don't have any sound, we put a headphone there. And, and this is because it adds a little bit more audio, I guess, shielding from you and an environment. So you can actually enjoy the visual novel that you're playing that has no sound or something like that. And, and if the game does have sound, you're not also as worried about people hearing what you're hearing in the game. And you can kind of have this direct, I guess, sound channel that's just on the headphone so that was quite nice to be able to play games like that and so that I, I think that adds a bit more I guess benefit for people who are more neurodivergent or people who have just sensorial distractions from places <laughs> I certainly do the other thing that we did was in order to make sure that the place feels quite safe and inclusive, we added a rainbow message wall in, in both runs. And at the end of the uh, Pride Play interview for all the game designers, we asked each one of them to say, what, what does it mean for you to play with Pride? And we have a bunch of answers. So we uh, wrote them down in... Um, five or six different colored from red to purple and then we installed them on the wall in the gallery space then we also asked the visitors what does it mean for you to play with pride after they kind of have seen the exhibition and they can just if they want write some words draw a picture some people drew a dog there was a chicken egg and there was like some other things as well anyway beautiful messages that they can also just add with a wooden peg on, on, onto the wall so the wall grew from you know having 15-20 answers eventually at the end of it it was like 40-50 completely covering the wall basically and we did that for both runs so that's also kind of a way for visitors to see it's not just the designers that are saying this it's not just the curators that are saying this but other other visitors who wanted to kind of say and support lgbtq pride or just love is love or be yourself you know that kind of a thing can say that and we saw also responses uh in not only english we saw chinese we saw korean we saw japanese there's even a squiggly language which i don't know what it is I'm assuming it's Thai, which Valia might know, but I'll have to show you that later. Probably is. <laughs> I'll dig it up for you next time we meet, because yeah. I would love to know what it says. <laughs> no, just kidding. I used Google Lens to look at it, and I translated it. I'm pretty sure it was good. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was really nice to be able to see like so many resounding, maybe resonating messages on the wall, and and that reinforces, you know, there is a community behind you in this space. And, and I think that was really important. Yeah, it was such a nice touch to have the rainbow wall and just being able to add and like get the lovely little notes from everyone. Um, it reminds me of the uh, the, the Lumi Interactive's kind of world where you get messages from people that are meant to be like uplifting. Oh my God. Yeah, they, they did that for, um, they even did a special event where they said, if you send a message in this time frame and this is finished now, they, they, they hired like a writer to write back to you. It was so nice. Oh, yeah, lovely. There's also, a game called um, Kind Words. Have you played that? No. I think it came out on Steam, I want to say three years ago now. So cute. Honestly, so cute. So it, it's just this little room that you're in and you basically are able to write a message to a stranger anywhere in the world. You don't, you don't know who it sends to, by the way. It's just another player. And the game kind of gives you an advice about like, you know, is this message like a question, seeking help, wanting to make friends? And then they ask you to reply through kind words. And uh, it's moderated as well. So the developer somehow made sure that it was super, super neat and it sold really well um, and people has like massive amazing reviews on it I, I played it for a couple of days and I was just finding so many reassuring 
and cute messages that came through this. And, and you can also share stickers. So as part of the, the paper plane, I guess, you can add a sticker. And then once it sends over there, that player, they then get that sticker to add to their collection and they can choose to reply by also adding a sticker back. And so there's also a sense of, oh, I, I need this sticker for this other person. I don't know who they are, but, uh, and the game encourages an, an, another mentee as well. So you don't know who it is, but you get to collect cute stickers in this little room. And oh. yeah, it's, it's cute. <laughs> Adorbs. Oh. Um, I think I also wanted to add that the lighting or the use of lighting at Pride of Play, I, to add even the fairy lights and the soft twinkling around the computers really added a lovely warmth. But what I want to say, Malian, is the pot plants and house plants you lend us. I think really added a lot of life to the space. It was really good. I had multiple uh, visitors at both venues to say, wow, those plants are so pretty. Where did you get them from? And I was like, it's from my colleague Malianne. She has all these plants and she's moving to Melbourne. And so I just, we just have them, I guess. <laughs> so, But the thing is, I think adding greenery and flowers really makes the room feel like more cozy it, it feels like this is lived in and this is uh there, there's history here the plants grew for some time even though we didn't we just put the pot plants there and we decorated it it added a sense of like this could be someone's massive living room they just happen to have games lying around i, I would say that plants did way more than the fairy lights <laughs> all right both were very nice <laughs> No, actually, I was talking to one of my uh, colleagues here at Monash. She used to be an interior designer before. She became a fashion design researcher, basically. She's amazing. And she told me, like, do not use fake plants. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I will find real plants. <laughs> so. I mean, I've, I've been very impressed in Melbourne. All the cafes have real plants and you just, you don't actually see that in Sydney. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Yeah, it's, it's a thing. Uh, so what I find really interesting as well is thinking about the importance of setting up a space to give context as much as immersion for any kind of display or gallery. So I believe this is a practice where there's a great study by Ian Ang where they talk about the Buddhism art gallery at the New South Wales gallery back in 2000 and something like early 2000s. And what they had learned is that they really needed to give context. So by like re changing the space itself of the gallery or the events and the activities that were going alongside the artworks so that people had a better appreciation for the artworks. So it's interesting when you mentioned the creating it as if like a bit of a someone's living room particularly for games cr does create that kind of like welcoming inviting context of where we might be playing games yeah and i think living room is probably a flawed example because that means it's someone's private space and you need to be invited to go in the living room whereas this is a semi-public gallery space that has opening hours and we do have signs on the you know downstairs that says it's open right now at this time you can come in and then we also had gallery minders that came from sydney women's college who were students residing on campus and we just hired them to help us watch the gallery while i may be away at a research workshop and the whole sydney run and in melbourne we had isom my people PhD students who looked at the gallery minding it on all four Saturdays, right? And and so you had someone greeting the visitors coming in and explaining to them if you need to what this is about as well. And if there's any questions, there's kind of someone there to guide you, help you around troubleshooting any issues because we have computers and computers are not perfect either. So I think the, the interesting thing is if we had shown this in a museum rather than a gallery or even outside in a library or in a alleyway, the whole feel is very different, right? Because 
because museum is more like oh these are historical artifacts that belongs in the museum it's ancient mm-hmm. they probably already passed long time ago where this is no this is a gallery these are living artists who are here which you know can, can have old artists as well but I'm saying like it's a different feel you're not next to stone tablets and potteries from 13th century and a public library and alleyway has different permissions like you know a library is more like I can borrow stuff I can just take stuff to the front desk shouldn't take our games please <laughs> don't take our <laughs> keyboards away gallery feels like oh I can't really touch this right I'm, I'm meant to here to be here to appreciate it but then we have the other problem of how do we get people to engage and actually sit down and play the games in addition to reading the quotes and so by providing explicit mentions of like this is how to play we, we had like how, how to play reference sheet for every single game that you can reference so WASD for moving or left click to select and stuff like that for this particular game uh, what button to press to go to the next game and also telling people that you know this is a place where, where you can sit down and try the games if you like and so that changed I also what people usually think about what galleries are and certainly in both the galleries that we exhibited in which normally just have paintings <laughs> in the gallery they also felt like wow I'm, I'm, we've never seen so many visitors coming in just they're just there for hours <laughs> this is so cool like usually people come in for 10 minutes and they're just you know moving on to other parts of their life but we had kids we have people coming in we have parents coming in we have elderly coming in asking me questions when I was there as well students from Sydney Uni coming in for the Sydney run many many times and they got to just be really surprised that this is here and they didn't think that um, this gallery could be turned into a playful space. Yeah and I also think framing it within the gallery space too where people are used to walking in and seeing paintings also showcases that even though we have statistics of like how much the video game industry globally makes money you know more money than the film industry for example right like these statistics are often pushed out over and over again or that there are a hundred studios in Melbourne alone it doesn't really speak to or think or add the details that maybe five studios in Melbourne can hire other people or a, a bigger than like 20, 20. Um, and that most of these game devs or perhaps game makers live like artists. And we don't often think about, I think generally in a popular context, if someone makes games, it's often thought of as in a big studio um, rather than independently. So the, most of the games we presented were by the one artist right or maybe in a very small group of like two yeah i think the majority of the games that we showed at Pride Play was done by one or two people there's a handful of exceptions that was done by a studio like lumi interactive who made kind of world that we mentioned studio dry dock made wildflowers and even unpacking was done by like a team of just over 10 i think uh, which being games if you include all the contracts that come in but yeah the majority is done by one person really Right. So about last night by Elisa Black, The Voice Monster by Safwolf, one person. Even Luke Miller's game, uh, The Beat, done by himself, which is crazy. Like that's a full-on 3D photogrammetry scanned time wobbly wibbly murder detective game. Like somehow, somehow he made it by himself. Impressive person. Yeah, and I guess what I was getting at also is if we compare to say paintings in the commercial side of things, you can buy a painting. You can you can buy literally the original painting. In fact, if the artist wishes to sell them, and then you can have it in your home. Great, that painting is yours. A video game or a tabletop game typically gets distributed by more than one copy because they want more than one person to be able to play this game. And so it's very different when you exhibit it in a gallery format. There's no expectation of you wanting to buy an original copy because there isn't one. And so it becomes, how do I find out about this game if I 
want to play it after the exhibition. And on the website for Prada Play and also in the catalog, we link to all the games, right? So we link directly to the store page, whether it's Steam or HIO or the developers page, if they have it there, we link it there. And if the game is free, you can play it there. And I think about half of the games that Prada Play is basically free. And then the other half is like, five or ten bucks it's pretty cheap and so you can just go and buy the games and support the artists directly in, in this case so the the work is not stored away in the archives of a museum and gets periodically shown out into a curation it's it's something that's already in circulation and i think the gallery's role in this case at least in my opinion is kind of highlighting uh, the importance of queer representation and storytelling and how games can be a medium for self-expression celebrating diversity and stuff like that and and that kind of you know like you say giving that context in not a buddhist art museum but it's rather given context to queer games uh, today in um, australia new zealand and surrounding countries is quite important and so yeah feeling feeling really lucky to to have done this with you actually yeah it's been an absolute pleasure i we had such a great team and there's so many people to thank and um but thank you xavier for coming on to keywords in play and sharing your insights and the lessons you've learned as well as i guess your, your own story of where you are at now and how you got here so how can people find more about your work read about your work or see your work follow you and so forth yeah my email's fairly open and i reply to pretty much everything uh, unless they're spam please don't spam me it's public on monash website because the benefit of being a full-time academic is your profile is public and so is your email. It's xavier.ho at monash.edu. You can easily find me. I have a personal website with, with a portfolio. So that's jtg.design. And whenever people see it, they're like, oh, you do artwork and installations and you do what now? I thought you were just like a researcher or I thought you are just a designer. I'm like, no, I'm, I also do art installations and stuff. So the portfolio is quite interesting to look at. And if people are interested in interactive media arts, light art and I guess public art then check it there I'll, I'll slowly upload more work there as I have them the plan I think is I also want to publish the opening essay that I wrote for the Pride of Play catalog there as well so I'll just say this has originally appeared in the catalog but I'll republish it here on my own personal website since I wrote it it's fine I have a very active Twitter presence but as we mentioned before we don't know what's going to happen to Twitter thanks to a certain person so you can find me at Xavier underscore Ho on Twitter for now. I can't say I will be there forever. And I mean, what is forever? I hope to um, yeah figure out other things like all the other social platforms, right? Like Threads getting pretty big now from Meta. And so is Instagram is still pretty big. They're not going to compete with each other, I don't think. I have a Blue Sky invite, but I haven't actively posted anything. I made an account on Co-host. I haven't actively posted anything. So... I'm currently thinking I need to sit down with like a social media plan. It's like, okay, <laughs> Blue Sky and Threads is, I don't know, once per day. Maybe Instagram is once a week. I, I don't know what it is. I, I have to figure out the audience and posting frequency because I'd like to use social media as a way to share work, but not as a way to just become, you know, too noisy with, with um, how I currently use Twitter. I, I post on Twitter without filter. So you'll find out about my bread that I bake as well as the paper I'm reading. You know, <laughs> it's all kinds of things. So yeah. Um, that's how people can get to me wonderful thank you so much and thank you for listening to this episode of Keywords in Play we hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play for more great ideas around games check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.com